Okay, hi everybody. Elias Krim. We're back at Dorothy's place, and I'm here with my buddy Pete Davis. Pete, how you doing? Hello. Hello, everyone. Glad to be back. Lots of uh, great stuff to talk about today. We're going to be interviewing Nathan Schneider in just a minute, um, who's written about a lot of interesting subjects uh, right down our alley. Uh, but we're going to do our short uh, bit where we do some recommendations. And we're going to start with a book today. And Pete, I think uh, you've got one picked out, right? Yeah, the book I want to recommend this week is Bill Kaufman's Look Homeward, America. Yeah, yeah. Bill Kaufman is, I would say, the nation's leading localist. Um, he, I, I got turned on to him from uh, following a blog he helped start called Front Porch Republic, which yep. is a Great blog. localism blog. Yep. Um, and his whole life, you know, there's people arguing on the left, there's people arguing on the right, but localism uh, cuts across all uh, of those divides and has a different dividing line, which is like the small and local versus the big and abstract. And um, he's brought together this whole network of people who are talking about politics at a human scale. And if we care about some of the things that we talk about with Solidarity Hall and with Dorothy's Place, uh, there's some national projects, there's international projects, there's a way of changing you know, your personal relationship to the world, but institutionally, a lot of the work is going to be done at the local level, and a lot of the work is pushing our focus from these broad national big things to the local level. So localism is a big part of any push for solidarity because that's where it all begins. And what Look Homeward America does is it's it's Bill Kaufman's like localism manifesto. And in the spirit of localism, instead of just writing about uh, localist ideas, he does this wild tour through the great localists of history because when you become a localist, you start caring about the specific textures of, of, of American history. It's not just kind of the broad, here was the Civil War, here was World War One, here was World War II. It's about, you know, what happened in this valley, what happened in this town. And so he talks about Dorothy Day. He talks about Grant Wood, the painter of American Gothic. He talks about forgotten presidents when viewed through a localist lens become much more interesting, like Millard Fillmore. Candidates like Eugene McCarthy, people who fought against war, you know, and what was great about this book, why it really resonated with me, two reasons. One is uh, that it flips kind of the anti, it identifies and flips the anti-localism spirit that's baked into a lot of our time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he talks about how we have these phrases like, oh, he got out of here. He's going to go far. Yeah, yeah. Um, as or this guy's not going anywhere. You know, that's a negative phrase. Going far is a positive phrase. He's like, wait, what about all these people who stayed put? Um, mm -hmm. And so I love that. And I also love that it turns a lot of American history on its head when viewed from the local oh, yeah. uh, way. So Bill Kaufman, like the most kind of controversial opinions he has is he's like an anti-imperialist through and through, you know, and he even writes against the people who argued against World War II or the people that argued against the Civil yeah, War, yeah. these wars that we usually think of as um, kind of moral clarity, with moral clarity, he complicates them. And, you know, it really does get you thinking, you know, World War II was, there was an honorable fight to be had there, but in the end, it's important to not forget that it was a guy in Washington sending boys from Kansas to go to Germany and Japan 
to, uh, and many of them didn't come back. And, and what was lost when we send people off to war, even if they're quote unquote good wars. Um, and, and, you know, you start thinking about the interstate highway system differently. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and you start thinking about these goofy local movements as less goofy and much more as, um, kind of serious fights to protect a way of life. And it really, um, I'm always interested in the thread in American history of left conservatism. Yeah. Um, people who about our precious inheritance conservatism, but also care about, uh, also are allergic to hierarchy and in exclusion being on the left. And I think look homeward America was a, was a kind of, I think a good book in that canon. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, you know, he is also a wonderful writer and and has a novelistic, he is a novelist, so he has a novelistic uh, sense of detail, and reading him is terrifically entertaining. So I all of his stuff, basically. So I, uh, I certainly second that recommendation. Bill Kaufman is a real uh, treasure and um, uh, kind of an unclassifiable guy in a way, you know, kind of wonderfully... Uh, mixed bunch of elements in this guy. Yep. Yeah, a true American original. And I think part of the fight about localism is to preserve American originals. That's right. You know, um, yep. where when it's it's a fight for heterogeneity. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah, that's good. Okay. And I've got an organization I want to mention. I, I wonder how many of our listeners might be aware of it. I don't know. Uh, but I found it kind of inspiring in my own kind of localist uh, efforts uh, here south of Chicago in northwest Indiana. Um, some people argue that the center of civic innovation today is Detroit, Michigan. Um, it is a place where the possibilities um, are wide open, um, maybe to some degree as a result of the challenges. Um, and a particularly good example of that is a group that's been around now, I think maybe five years or thereabouts, called Detroit Soup. Um, Detroit Soup is now a nonprofit. The, the soup uh, notion is has gone international. Um, but in Detroit, the idea was in our various neighborhoods, uh, we should get together about every month, meet up at some old building, some old space, where at the door you pay five bucks, you go in and you get a bowl of soup and a bottle of water and a piece of bread. It's pretty minimal. And you sit down and then maybe four, five, six people in a row stand up at the front and they pitch their project. You pitch for just a few minutes something you're doing in the neighborhood that you would like some microfunding for. And at the end of the evening, uh, there's a simple vote and the winner gets the door, five bucks times whatever number of people showed up. So just for coming over, you might win three, four hundred bucks uh, pitching your idea for all kinds of different arts, uh, community related, after school, food related projects. They've been doing this, as I say, for over five years. They have had hundreds and hundreds of proposals Uh, A number of them have turned into businesses. Uh, Probably a larger number have turned into nonprofit organizations and stuck around. Um, And they have raised well over $100,000, 
piecemeal uh, through these soup meetups. They are basically neighborhood microfunding dinners. Um, it's a very, very easy model to imitate. They also argue strongly, this is, um, as, as the founder once put it, it is Shark Tank without the assholes. Um, <laughs> which, which is a great definition. Um, it's also about not the funding, not the money. After all, we're not talking about a lot of money here, really. It is about neighborhood people meeting each other, having a chance to hear what we're working on, and then getting together and, um, you know, collaborating. So it's a wonderful collaborative effort. Um, if, it's, if it's done right, you can find these people at DetroitSoup.com. And that will also tip you off to all kinds of other um, soups in other cities and towns. There's a number of different variations on the model, but it's like the ultimately simple bootstrap, um, you know, way to go at getting your, your project both funded, possibly, or maybe more importantly, uh, you know, publicized and uh, in collaboration. What I love about that model, um, I hope we can help. Let's spread this model to everybody. What I love about it is that when people are, I talk to a lot of people who are thinking about starting civic projects, and there are not many rungs at the bottom of a ladder yeah. towards civic projects. There's a lot to help scale it. There's a lot when you like have an idea and a proof of concept. Um, there's a lot of like education, really like to like learn the concepts of it. But when you want to take something from idea to first and second step, um, there's not a lot. And people, a lot of people get discouraged. And when people build these first rungs of the ladder, like, hey, why don't you just, hey, you had a great idea at dinner. Why don't you go pitch it at Detroit Soup in three weeks? Yeah. You know, yeah. then probably the biggest thing to come out of it is not the money or even the networking that comes from it, but just the confidence that if you win that, that your idea is worth something. Because I think we're all sitting with civic ideas in our head mm -hmm. and we're just waiting for kind of the encouragement and the kick of the pants to go forward with it. And anything that helps um, show people that they're not crazy and other people like their ideas too, I think is, is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. You know, their website, uh, which has a logo with the subheadings um, social entrepreneurs, justice, art, and urban agriculture, which kind of hints at the range of um, uh, ideas that are pitched. It also has a page where you can even download um, a Google Doc of all the winners, their email addresses, their websites, and a description of their project. This is really hundreds of great ideas um, for rebuilding your neighborhood, you know? Uh, they've also got a podcast, and they also have a link called Start a Soup, which is sort of their how-to uh, page. So a lot, of, a lot of great stuff here. This is wonderful. All right, we're going to get to Nathan. Uh, Pete, you're telling me you've been reading some Nathan lately. Before we get him on the horn here, uh, what, what did you pick up on? Yeah, to get everyone excited, Nathan is one of the is probably the nation's leading expert on platform cooperativism. He's a wonderful uh, sage of uh, kind of the left labor Christian world. Um, he's spiritual. He's political. He's visionary. And um, I read a bunch of 
his articles in preparation of this, and one stuck out that I think is just so important for our time. We didn't bring it up in the conversation with him, but please check it out. It's about, um, he wrote about attention um, and how Christianity is a religion that pays attention to attention um, and that where we decide to put our focus matters. And a lot of the preferential option for the poor is about deciding to focus on things that are important to the poor and marginalized as opposed to the things that are important to the um, kind of the privileged and the powerful. Um, and, you know, someone once said how we spend our days is how we spend our life. And I think how we what we pay attention to is how we spend our days. So our life is made up of what we pay attention to. Um, and in this era specifically, um, I won't mention the man's name, uh, there's a lot to distract us uh, and to throw our attention in every which way. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and one of our jobs, I think as citizens, is to think really hard about what we're paying attention to. And Nathan really pulled that out in his article. If you type in uh, his name and attention, the article will come up. I think it was either in America Magazine or The Nation. I think America Magazine. Yes, so. yes that's right. Um, yep. And so, um, so something to check out among his other wonderful articles too. Great, great, very good. All right, let's get uh, Nathan Schneider on the phone and have a chat. Okay, we've got uh, Nathan Schneider with us, and uh, we're fans of Nathan's work. Great we could connect with him this morning. Nathan, how you doing? Good. Good morning. You are speaking to us from uh, the beautiful landscape of Colorado, I believe. Well, from my cave-like office uh, uh, adjacent to it, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my colleague who's windows I, I rely on for natural light it has been out for most of the summer so um, the shades are down and and uh, but that's how I like it really that's I'm, I was wondering if that was that's been a bit of an adjustment when you've been teaching out there you are an East Coast guy right well yes and no I um, I grew up in the East Coast uh, in Virginia and the in the within the Beltway in Arlington Virginia and then uh, I went to college on the East Coast and then grad school on the West Coast, but then very quickly, uh, uh, very eagerly went to New York and spent most of my, my career there. So just came to Colorado in, um, about two years ago uh, to start teaching here. And uh, though, though actually I'd been coming here all my life because my mother's family is from out here. So uh, some of them are still farmers. Uh, uh, mostly around Greeley and Fort Collins, and and uh, some are in Denver or in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. So in a way, it's a kind of homecoming, and it's you know it's taught me a lot too to reconnect with them. I've been very grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nathan, as a first question, so I'm from uh, Northern Virginia as well, inside the Beltway and Falls Church. Uh, right near the West Falls Church Metro Station, and I'm interested in your uh, political. It's kind of similar to the Christotypic question on on being. What are your spiritual origins? And I'd love to ask about your uh, spiritual political origins because uh, growing up in D.C., it's an interesting place because you're drenched in politics, but not necessarily one of the most spiritual places in America. And I'd love to hear this. I think our listeners would love to hear the story of um, how you went from um, kind of that suburban life to being a, a, a millennial sage of uh, 
of uh, left, uh, left and labor-minded uh, Christianity. Oh, goodness, that's quite a setup. Um, <laughs> well, well, yeah, growing up in the belt, Beltway is, is definitely an odd experience because you're, um, uh, at least in the neighborhood where I was, uh, surrounded by a kind of bureaucratic mentality uh, and, you know, surrounded by people who work in Washington in various ways. Uh, one of the benefits, for instance, is uh, the estate sales are fantastic because you walk into these really kind of mundane looking houses on the outside and on the inside, you know, you, it turns out it's a State Department person. That's always your big hope. And it's full of the treasures of the world uh, from all of their travels, um, you know, if they're State Department or military or, or something of that sort, or they're from a very different part of the country and, and brought that with them. Uh, uh, but but otherwise, it's, it's a place that, um, you know, in some ways, uh, uh, very unique and and trains one to think in terms of a kind of um, of a kind of blue and red dichotomy, right? And and the the horizon of possibility is very much uh, uh, bounded by the possibilities of this congressional session, mm-hmm. uh, and and that was um, uh, you know that that was my my. Uh, vision early on, uh, just by virtue of being there, but but also uh, things that I experienced in that area uh, turned me elsewhere. For instance, I, I happened to go to a, a high school. Um, it was a, a an, kind of an alternative public school back before they had uh, fancy charter schools and Goldman Sachs uh, uh, bankrolling them and that sort of thing. It was just actually a school, school within the main public system. And, and is this H.B. Woodlawn? It was H.B. Woodlawn, the yeah. Fame has produced many a great political thinkers out of H.B. Woodlawn, yeah. We, we try. Uh, and it, it's a, um, then that, if that's true, that's not an accident. It's a, a place where, um, where students really genuinely have a voice. Uh, every week there was what was called a town meeting that included both students and faculty um, and staff, and and they would just gather and make decisions together that were actually consequential decisions uh, for the school. And that sense of being trusted um, with a process was, as I look back on it, a really, really formative one because it uh, told me at that point in my adolescence uh, uh, that that people, when given the chance, can uh, govern themselves and can do so uh, uh, responsibly. And, and that, that was, uh, I, I think that's a lesson that I've, I've come back to over and over. Now, a- another thing that I encountered uh, in that area that turned me a little bit outside of the red-blue dichotomy was, um, was my encounter with Holy Cross Abbey, which is a uh, a Cistercian monastery, Trappist monastery, um, in near Berryville, Virginia, which is actually where the Democrats just went to announce wow. their new uh, kind of populist-ish uh, um, uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi economic uh, uh, better deal plan, uh, and uh, and and it was uh, there at Holy Cross that I first encountered, uh, in a really direct way, Catholic tradition. And there I found, again, a, a politics at work, uh, you know, m- monks who are self-governing, who are interacting with a global church and uh, 2,000 years of history. And, and there, too, um, I started to see a politics beyond the congressional session, uh, as well as the spirituality. 
Uh, and so those two experiences of that, of that kind of cosmic and historical uh, encounter with the monastery, which indeed you know led me on the way toward becoming a Catholic myself, uh, and then that very up close um, uh, uh, outgrowth of kind of 60s, 70s radicalism at H.B. Woodlawn that that uh, taught me the kind of day-to-day experience of of being entrusted with one's own community. Very cool. And then I've heard you say, I think um, in a couple of interviews, you had sort of a, a mixed religious uh, set, set of religious influences from your parents uh, in a couple of different directions, yes? Yeah, so my, my father's uh, side of the family is Jewish, and so I, I come by uh, Judaism through them. And, and uh, my mother, you know, again, uh, was, uh, her family's from Colorado. They're uh, German-Russians. Uh, Lived German speakers who lived in Russia um, until the kind of uh, early years of the 20th century, and and um, they were, you know, kind of country Protestants, and and they uh, that was not a, a faith that stuck with her too much. So she, she ended up becoming a very devoted seeker, and and uh, it, while I was a child, became a very devoted devotee. Of um, of a guru who lived in India um, named Ramana Maharshi, uh, who died in 1950. So uh, he never left really his the mountain where he lived. She never met her, him, but uh, he became the kind of guiding point of her life uh, and remains so. And so, you know, my my uh, path has always been uh, accompanied by by theirs, by my parents, and um, and you know, as much as I've gone in my own direction, I've uh, remained, you know, their son, and and uh, have hoped to remain a companion, uh, you know, a spiritual companion as well as a mm-hmm. uh, a son to them. Yeah, yeah. So, when did you start uh, making this turn towards interest in labor policy, worker cooperatives, uh, and the like? I, I'm not exactly sure when that started for me. I keep trying to figure that out. You know, I, I, I guess my first explicit encounter with cooperatives was when I was in college. As, you know, it, thankfully, many people have the experience of living in a housing cooperative uh, uh, in, uh, at that, in that period. Um, it was a quite well-developed network, and, and I, I lived in one uh, uh, in Rhode Island. And uh, I also had the opportunity to be, as my house job, for part of that time, uh, I was the house historian. And so not only was I experiencing the benefits of extremely cheap rent and cheap food and, and really good food, it's also where I learned to cook, uh, uh, and really good community, a uh, kind of nurturing um, uh, home like I'd never had, uh, never had a, you know, on, on my own before. Uh, and, um, uh, it, uh, but I also got to, uh, uncover pieces of the story of how this community was formed and the, um, the imagination and the effort that went into building it. Um, and then, and then of course, uh, especially as I, uh, uh, as the years went on, I, um, was involved with, uh, much more the resistance side of, of political action. So I, I was a co-founder of a website called waging nonviolence in my early years as a, as a journalist. And, 
And so our, our mission was to figure out how to cover social movements the way, uh, you know, normal publications cover the White House. Uh, you know, just watch it every day, um, be there for all the press conferences, get to know all the people, whether anything big is happening or not, you know, keep up relationships. And so we were working with uh, resistors all around the world. And, and this, of course, put me in contact with, uh, you know, a great deal of, uh, you know, but the labor movement and, and um, uh, you know, and also movements for, for um, uh, democracy under dictatorships, all these sorts of things. But there was always this lurking notion, um, you know, articulated, for instance, by Gandhi, who, who uh, held that the vast majority of his work was always what he called the positive program, um, as opposed to the, the work of resistance that he's probably best known for. You know, and this, this positive program is reflected in the the flag of India with the spinning wheel, right? The, mm-hmm. that, that was his symbol of, of self-reliance and um, uh, a self-generated economy. Uh, and, and he really insisted, despite the, the images that would play on the, um, on the news and the headlines, uh, that it was that work of building an economy, building an alternative uh, 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 that was actually the core of what he did. Uh, and I've seen that play out much more in many more movements uh, 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 across time and around the world. And, and so I you know, gradually started uh, uh, wanting to uh, uh, turn my journalistic guide toward, um, toward that side of, of processes for social change that get so easily neglected when we focus on the more spectacular protests. Yeah. You know, as a way of kind of transitioning into uh, some of your more recent work, I was thinking about the fact that I think we're all three um, readers of Rebecca Solnit. And I remember her book, uh, Paradise Built in Hell, was a real uh, revelation to me. And I get the sense, Nathan, that for you, um, it was not quite a crisis in the way her book describes crises, but September 17th, 2011, was a uh, extraordinary moment where you found yourself um, in um, a context where suddenly the the rules seemed suspended and everything was about to get reimagined. And as I as I read uh, your book, Thank You Anarchy, um, I, I picked up a sense that that was a kind of a formative moment for you. Uh, could could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So uh, that was the, you know, the day that that Occupy Wall Street began, yep. um, which was a, a you know, a, a vital uh, a, a kind of beginning. Uh, certainly, it, it swept me up for a couple of years of of work and and um, relationships and and uh, and kind of imagination shifting. Uh, but I, you know, actually, uh, someone like. Solnit, you know, who, who I was grateful ended up writing the the foreword for 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 my book. Thank you, Anarchy. Uh, uh, would incline us to ask questions about what surrounds that date. Um, you know, wh- when did that movement really begin, um, uh, and when did it really end? Uh, and uh, th- those are questions I've been puzzling with a lot ever since. You know, the September 17th was the day announced by Adbusters that this should start. Mm-hmm. But um, it also, the uprising also had uh, deep connections in the movements happening around the world that year, uh, first in the Middle East and then in Europe uh, and elsewhere in the world. Uh, it was also 
uh, a kind of outgrowth of the uh, of the economic crisis. It was a uh, response to uh, to the politics of the Obama administration from a left and a generation that had supported him, uh, uh, but but wanted more uh, and, and wanted better. Uh, so, so it's many things. And then the question of when it ended, when that moment that, you know, there was a period where for a couple of months, this this uprising was on the news all the time and was everywhere you looked and, and everyone was talking about it. And it kind of shifted this conversation about uh, uh, inequality and and brought up some new leaders and this sort of thing. But, um, you know, I, I ended up uh, sticking around uh, uh uh, longer than that, you know. The, my, my method as a reporter is not to like be there while, while things are always happening. I don't, I don't like being around other reporters. You know, uh, I, I like to be the only one there. So I was most uncomfortable when it was biggest, and then I, I really, really got deep. You know, once all the other reporters went away, and um, you know, I, I was there before they came, and I and I uh, stuck around after, and I started seeing. Um, these these uh, young activists who'd thrown their themselves so fully into this into this movement, trying to figure out what to do next once the moment had passed, and um, and that that's where I started seeing um, quite a few of them uh, turning to that uh, tradition of cooperative enterprise and saying, well, yeah, you know, this idea of uh, you know business owned by the people who participate in it really does seem like the most sensible thing that really the only kind of business we can handle, you know, we don't like the nonprofit industrial complex. We don't like, you know, the big corporations, uh, uh, you know, we, we, what about this other form? Uh, and so they started, uh, you know, started seeing people pouring into it in New York city, for instance, uh, people working, uh, very successfully to, uh, get the city to support uh, the development of worker cooperatives, and and they started forming cooperatives of their own, and um, and 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 as I started getting more curious about this, you know, I realized that they were only scratching the surface, and that on the one hand, this was a movement and a sector much older and much bigger and and more yep. uh, remarkable than than they or I realized, uh, and that also it was a um, a movement that we really desperately need at this moment, especially as we undergo this transformation to a, a more information-based, uh, platform-oriented economic structure. Yeah. Yeah. I always, you know, the critique of Occupy was always the popular conventional critique was was always, oh, they had so much negativity and criticism and protest, but no positive program. But you know, the way that I've seen it from people from experience at it and talking to people who actually were involved in it is that it was a huge germ for all these various reimaginings. It was actually much more of a reimaginative place than a, a place of protest and much more than other protests, say, you know, the hashtag resistance now in Trump compared to, um, which seems a lot more like protest, 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 whereas Occupy had this imagination element to it. Yeah, you know, I think there, there are two different phases for two different moments. You know, I, I mean, at the, 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 you know, quote unquote resistance uh, underway now um, in various sectors, you know, has a very clear kind of impressing crisis uh, uh, in the political system. And so it's striking to see a lot of the same people who were criticized during Occupy Wall Street for being impossibly utopian and and um, uh, you know, to kind of uh, uh, navel gazing, uh, 
for for ordinary politics are now involved in trying to change the Democratic Party and and trying to um, uh, uh, build power in the political system. Um, but but the moment for Occupy was different, you know, because that was that was you know again this was you know the, the, these, this was the generation that had just elected Obama um, and had experienced that euphoria of electing the first African American president and you know, electing somebody who seemed to embody a lot of their hopes, but whose uh, political program uh, was not always as, um, didn't manage to end up containing all of their hopes, um, being a durable container for those hopes. And so I think, you know, a couple of years uh, down down through the crisis, uh, seeing these uprisings happening around the world, they, it, it was a moment for this generation to ask itself, what do you really want? Uh, what are you really after? Um, it, it can't just be whatever is being proposed by the Democratic Party or whatever it is, or even, you know, say the Libertarian Party or in some cases the Republican Party. Um, it, it was a, um, it was a, I think, arose out of a need to uh, 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 kind of reset the compass. And in that respect, I think it had um, tremendous uh, uh, imaginative and uh, and spiritual focus uh, it was very much about the ex- building an experience in those occupations with uh, uh, food available with music with with uh, libraries with mutual education you know I, th- I think that in some ways the most powerful impact of of those occupations was the way in which you know people would come in and out over the space of two weeks uh, with what seemed like you know a a whole college degree, you know, they, they just seem to uh, be taking in so much from each other and encountering uh, people in such new ways. Um, and, and yes, that, that side of it um, is hard to see from the vantage point of the headlines. Yeah. One more question on Occupy um, that you touched on a bit at the end there is Joseph Bodden in Bottom in an Anxious Age, which was his big book on like the decline of mainline Protestantism in America. Um, He said he, he was inspired to write that book by walking through an Occupy camp and seeing it as a spiritual place, seeing the spirituality in Occupy. And I'd love to see if um, you're a religious minded guy. um, What did you see religious elements to Occupy? What's your take on that? Um, Or is that reading too much into it? No, absolutely. Uh, You know, it's no accident that the subtitle of the book was Notes from the Occupy Apocalypse. You know, I I think there were incredible uh, relevatory characteristics uh, of the movement. And, you know, I appreciated uh, Bottom's uh, commentary on that. You know, I uh, had dinner with him a few times uh, in the years before that and was always very um, taken with him. And and so I was I was glad uh, to see his insights on it, on, on Occupy. But uh, absolutely, you know, I, I, it, this was a movement that um, uh, in some ways uh, 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 was a, the kind of, um, it, it, you know, for me personally, was kind of the, um, uh, the, the, the finishing of my, of my conversion process. And that seems strange to say, but, you know, about 10 years earlier, I had uh, been baptized, uh, you know, a little less than that. that. Um, But, you know, I 
never really knew what it meant for me. And it, and it was hard for me to even claim in public that I was a Christian. I was always anxious about it. I was never really sure what it meant. And, and the strange thing was, was, was seeing, um, you know, being among, being a part of this, this uh, uh, you know, massive group of people um, throwing themselves into something, um, uh, devoting themselves to each other uh, in the communities that would form in the in these occupations, um, uh, you know, where I started, I saw, for instance, images of the early church, and um, and it, in a funny way, that kind of made me find my calling and and helped me realize what I had been aspiring toward all those years uh, since my turn to um, to Christianity and to and to Catholicism this this anxiety that i had been holding found a kind of resolution in uh, the politics there and and it wasn't always just politics you know for instance uh, th there was a great deal in the movement where this these supposedly secular folks found themselves calling upon religious authorities in religious language you know to act hmm. like a church uh, and, and that was it, it was it really came out in a conflict over over some land with Trinity Wall Street, which is a big old Episcopalian church in in uh, right at the top of Wall Street. And, you know, and, and these occupiers, you know, who uh, apparently, you know, were not themselves churchgoers, uh, though, though actually more might have been than than I realized at the time, um, you know, we're starting to speak to this uh, uh, to this church in biblical language. Uh, you know, uh, they, they set up one one day a, a little tent. You know, they must have like stolen or borrowed a little uh, one of these little sample tents that you see at REI. You know, it's like six inches tall. Um, uh, you know, when they're trying to sell the bigger tent but don't want to pull it all out. Um, and they had a little a little nativity scene in it. And this is right around Christmas. You know, and, and then they had the little sign on top of it that said, "There's no room left at the end." You know, they were huh. trying to send a message about hospitality. You know, using the imagery of the tents, you know, that reflected their occupation and uh, the language of of uh, the church or of the of, of scripture. Um, so, so they were not. They, there was never the complaint. You're bad because you're a church. The complaint was, you're not really acting the way we think a church should act. Huh. Um, and and that, you know, and I think and most of the time when I heard those cries, you know, I thought that yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and then I would think about the ways in which. In which um, the church had so much to offer to this uh, to this community. For instance, all the anxiety about about the financialization of the economy. You know, these are things that Thomas Aquinas was worried about. You know, these are very ancient concerns. Uh, uh, and and so gradually, I started um, I, I, together with some others, a you know priest and a nun. I found uh, the day they were arrested uh, uh, there. Uh, started a group called Occupy Catholics. And what we started doing was bringing some of the fruits of this tradition into conver conversation with the, with the movement. You know, Nathan, one of the things I enjoyed about uh, Thank You Anarchy was the way you would interweave developments in other places. You mentioned uh, Marina Citroen, what was going on in Greece. Um, and I know since Occupy, You've been to uh, Nairobi, to the uh, Cooperative University, and also to Barcelona. And, you know, I wonder, I wonder if you have a sense that uh, we Americans are really kind of catching up to a lot of uh, interesting and remarkable stuff that's going on uh, elsewhere. 
Well, there's so much to learn from from uh, getting outside of this country, and um, and I certainly saw that there. You know, uh, the um, the great uh, social movement trainer uh, from the '80s, a little bit '70s, uh, Bill Moyer, uh, part of the Quaker, mostly Quaker community, um, uh, 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 called the Movement for a New Society, uh, it had this eight-stage uh, process for social movements. Uh, this kind of eight-stage uh, uh, map of of uh, how movements developed. He called it the Movement Action Plan, and um, and and for him, the pivotal, the most important moment was was right after the big blow up, the big explosion. You know, in this case, you know, September seventeenth and and September, October, November of of twenty eleven, when this uh, this movement was all over the news. Um, after that, there's this there's this come down and this 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 feeling of the sensation of failure. And he thought that was the most important thing. You know, what you do with that, um, where you take the trajectory of, of uh, the, and the concerns of the movement uh, into a next stage is so vital uh, uh, in what follows. And what's been cool since then is looking around the world, oh, cool, also tragic, um, uh, and seeing the different ways that different societies have dealt with that moment. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, societies like, uh, you know, Egypt on the one hand kind of turned back to uh, law and order yeah. uh, with that sense of, of frustration and failure. I think it's kind of the Napoleonic moment for um, Egypt. It doesn't mean that the revolution is over, but that it's in a, in a kind of authoritarian stage. Uh, and... Uh, and, and then uh, the the folks in Barcelona and, and in Spain really poured their energy into um, creating new kinds of political parties, and especially in Barcelona, um, have been able to do a great deal, uh, in, and are, are now basically in power in the city, uh, and are 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 um, becoming uh, a kind of uh, a leading light for a new kind of urbanism. Uh, grounded in in both local communities and a sense of of uh, global participation and citizenship, um, so, so so there's a lot to learn from there, uh, and and the folks I've seen in the United States have gone in many different directions. Uh, the the direction I chose to to really follow was was that of building uh, uh, democratic uh, economies, but but um, uh, others have gone in deeply into environmental activism. Uh, uh, deeply into uh, building the, for instance, the the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign and uh, 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 many other trajectories uh, that have uh, uh, that have sometimes seemed to coalesce a little bit, but uh, other times have also seemed uh, uh, quite disparate. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I'm thinking that um, one of the things that comes out of Occupy. It comes out of a kind of a millennial thing, which I'm watching with great admiration, not being one, is a pushback on what um, a woman named Nicole Foss, who is often interviewed by James Howard Kunstler, calls the shrinking trust horizon. And so what she's describing, the, the sort of bad news is that increasingly over the last several years in this country, uh, part of the reason for localism is a kind of uh, shrugging off of any sense that larger loyalties can apply. Uh, the larger systems are broken. 
Um, and so, you know, part of populism is the stark welling up of a sense that um, it's just us and our gang, uh, you know, against the world. On the other hand, pushing back on that um, is the positive sense from Occupy, the creative thing, you know, typified, for example, by this movement in Europe called City Makers. Um, I suspect that this Fearless Cities conference that was just held in Barcelona, I think about a month ago, um, I don't know, were you aware of that, Nathan, mm-hmm. the thing I'm describing? Yeah. It's, it's part of that expanding trust horizon, rebuilding trust, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think there are different currents running uh, uh, around at the same time. And uh, I, I've been reading lately, you know, uh, uh, the the history of uh, Ibn Khaldun, you know, the Makadama, the introduction to history from, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, the medieval Tunisia. And, um, <laughs> and, and you know, his, his way of seeing the world is divided between the sedentary people and the nomads, right? And so I've been trying to ask myself, who are the nomads and who are the sedentary, you know, and he, he sees, so he sees history, not just as a kind of Hegel. I mean, in a way there's a, there's a connection with the Hegelian dialectic, but, it, but there's kind of, it's a little different in that, in that it's like two streams that are always, that are always playing and interweaving and, um, and uh, mixing around with each other. And yeah. uh, so, so this turn toward, you know, the city as, and the placemaking, uh, movement, uh, uh, you know, with which Barcelona, I think, is is uh, uh, you know key example, uh, is is you know one current that's at work here, uh, and it also participates in a in a kind of nomadism as well. You know, there's kind of a globalism among these cities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they become like islands that you travel uh, around among and have your Airbnb and your Uber everywhere you go. Uh, and um, on the one hand, there's some really, really exciting um, uh, uh, developments, uh, especially in Europe, around this language of the commons uh, and the city as a commons. Yeah. Uh, and 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 there, of course, you know, they're just way ahead of us. Um, uh, yep. There's always more of an attention to public goods rather than private goods uh, that one finds there. And and um, the the. Um, uh, the ways in which cities are becoming these kinds of palettes for uh, developing a new common life uh, uh, and one that's in conversation with the old uh, is just very, very beautiful. And, and uh, when one travels around these among these cities um, uh, and sees what they're doing, uh, you know, b- developing laws that, you know, shockingly enable people to like tend you know, the public parks near their houses, you know, just allowing people to do normal stuff that that ordinary kind of industrial law doesn't allow for. But rediscovering our own humanity uh, through these communities is is uh, happening there at the same time. You know, so is Brexit. So is the rise of a of a new a new right that that is um, uh, resisting these, these kinds of uh, uh, open flows. And so it. There are many forces at, at once uh, at play here, and that's why uh, uh, part of why I think the, this uh, cooperative tradition is starting to come back in a new way. You know, we're in a moment of incredible flux, and the social contracts of the previous world aren't working anymore. Yep. And this, these are the kinds of moments when um, uh, when cooperatives and and similar kinds of uh, organizing uh, are, are become so so vital uh, and become the means of rewriting 
the next social contract. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have just kind of an aside in, uh, in Thank You Anarchy to a guy named Jonah Bosowicz, who was pointing out that a recession that's lasted much longer than the financial one in this country and one that has affected our, our mental health, really, is the social recession. So surely part of a cooperative inspiration is about um, overcoming that social recession, which is an interesting way of describing it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Jonah. He, you know, he's a really uh, interesting uh, man who, who is, um, uh, on the one hand, a, a, a software developer, uh, you know, very involved in the open source movement and has been for a long time, uh, and also was involved with a kind of open source mental health movement called the Icarus Project. Uh, and it's it's a um, uh, a community that, uh, uh, that that has actually been very important for me over the years uh, in dealing with with some issues in my family uh, of people who come together and and uh, help walk each other through mental uh, uh, health issues with a with an approach that is less clinical than kind of fully humanistic. You know, they, they talk, for instance, about mad gifts. You know, they talk about the way in which our uh, 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 in which in which uh, things that appear to be mental illness, you know, are can be very debilitating and must be dealt with on those terms, but also are part of our personhood. Um, and and that, it, you know, all these things do come down to personhood in a really critical way. You know, I, I this morning I was just uh, finally taking my first look at this uh, translation. Uh, it's such a precious thing. Uh, it's a translation. Uh, that uh, that a, a, a fellow Steve Herrick up in uh, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, is making yep. of of a um, biography, uh, really an intellectual biography of Jose Maria Mendiarrieta. Yes, yes, I know. Pronunciation that. of that name, I'm totally messing up. I've just <laughs> the short version. Arismendi. Arismendi <laughs> is acceptable. I understand. This is the founder of Mondragon uh, uh, Cooperative, the the largest network of worker cooperatives uh, in the world, yep. in the Basque Country. Um, you know, absolutely remarkable economic and political achievement uh, uh, created uh, first by uh, a Catholic priest. And and the first thing that this biography is called The Cooperative Man says, um, and it's so exciting because there's no real writing about him in, in English um, uh, uh, quite at this level yet. And so this is very new. Um, the, the book at the very beginning insists that Arismendi was not interested primarily in the means of production or uh, some kind of economic theory. He was interested in the person, right? right. He was, yep. he was, his, his thought was an outgrowth of that, of that kind of early mid 20th century, Ameri uh, not American, excuse me, Catholic um, uh, personalism, you know, which saw the development of the person as this, uh, as this nurturing of, of uh, the, the dignity of that God gives us, uh, God gives each of us. Um, and, and so isn't it remarkable that the most uh, re uh, extraordinary uh, achievement in cooperative economics of the modern era was the result not of someone who was primarily concerned about economics, but someone who was primarily concerned about uh, uh, the dignity of human beings right. uh, and yep. their ability to find their own flourishing. I think that's just such a beautiful, a beautiful uh, 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 challenge. Uh, to, to those of us who um, uh, believe we might have a plan for how to save the world. <laughs> That's good. That's good.
Pete, any other questions on your Yeah, side? what a what a perfect transition to the corner of the cooperative economy that you are uh, one of the leading experts on, which is platform cooperativism, yeah. um, which is the idea, and correct me if I'm wrong, of, of bringing the spirits of cooperatives to these new internet platforms, including Twitter and Facebook and Uber. Um, and I'd love to just get, you know, I've had a lot of people... Uh, are following it, but I'd love to get the latest update uh, from the movement. Um, how are the Uber alternatives working out? How's the project of getting Twitter's users to own Twitter that you uh, talked about in an article going? Um, and and what should we be keeping an eye out for uh, in that movement in the coming year? Well, there's there's so much. I mean, it's been really exciting in the past few years to be part of this group of people all over the world who are uh, trying to figure out how to build uh, uh, more democratic um, uh, pieces of the internet uh, and to and to work toward a, an internet that's really uh, and an online economy and an economy in general that's really ac accountable to the people who depend on it. And um, right now, the the real work is building an ecosystem, building uh, the networks that can support these kinds of businesses. You know, we've we've gotten a lot of press with stuff like the, the buy Twitter campaign, you know, where we submitted a, a, a shareholder proposal to Twitter suggesting it consider user ownership rather than selling to Disney or something like that. Um, but, but again, the vast majority of the work and, the, and uh, what, what I spend my more, much more of my time doing is, is um, uh, helping to, to weave together the connections that will enable um, uh, uh, more companies uh, more entrepreneurs, more more um, communities uh, to find uh, uh, financing and and support and tools that will enable them to build um, their their economies democratically. Uh, so, you know, we're we're in the process. I, you know, this is a really powerful challenge too. Is of trying to bring together the existing cooperative sector, which has, in many cases, had a generation gap. You know, has has. Um, uh, tended to, to remain older, uh, has not tended to bring younger people into the leadership ranks, and so therefore has not really um, confronted the challenge of the, of the platform economy uh, the way it needs to, and, and bring them into contact with this, with this growing um, uh, world of, of young people who are just craving uh, cooperative strategies and, and mentorship and the means of uh, of building their ideas into reality, uh, and uh, so so what I'm doing a lot of is is uh, uh, helping to coordinate uh, entrepreneurs with potential investors with with um, uh, uh, places for people to just hang out and get to know each other. Um, uh, you know, we have to realize how much our economy is really culture, uh, and uh, and. Uh, it, it's a set of assumptions. It's a set of networks yeah. and communities and beliefs about what an entrepreneur looks like and um, and what an entrepreneur should be doing to build a business. And um, so we're realizing more and more how much of that we have to undo. Uh, and, and but at the same time, you know, the companies that have gotten going um, are uh, in the midst of some really powerful. Um, Activities, uh, uh, you know, Stocks United, a stock photo cooperative owned by the photographers, is just doing better and better every year. Um, uh, Locomics, which is a you know Bay Area-based uh, freelancer 
uh, platform co-op is um, is uh, doing uh, is is growing in some really exciting ways in Europe. Um, a freelancer, a freelancer organization called Smart, um, really remarkable, kind of like the freelancers union in the U.S. on steroids, um, has just now converted to a cooperative, seeing the benefits of this kind of model uh, with tens and tens of thousands of workers. Um, so, wow. so there's, there's a lot happening, um, and uh, and and the real challenge though is, is you know not just whether we can inspire more kind of co-op. Uh, ideologues to to, um, uh, to to get into this, but you know how can we make it so easy that that people who have great ideas and want to build them in the world see democratic business as a live option, yeah. and uh, and that's that's what we're working for, and that's that's a tough challenge um, uh, given uh, how much our society has already invested in a system uh, uh, in which uh, in which those who happen to uh, control best pools of money uh, uh, get to control uh, uh, whatever new ideas come come down the and that's, line. That's why I was so happy you wrote that article on business schools teaching cooperative, um, teaching about cooperatives. You know, that's where it starts is that having business schools teach that. I'm at law school right now. We only have one professor who teaches any labor law at all, and there's absolutely no law on the law of cooperatives. And if it's not in the schools, you know, it's not getting implanted into the next generation's heads as a possibility. Um, and so that's part of the fight too, is pushing through towards um, seeing it as a path. Oh yeah, and it's such a shame because cooperative law is really fun. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, I've uh, had the privilege, one of the great joys of moving to, to Colorado was I soon came into contact with uh, a fellow my age with a kid, you know, the same age as my kid, uh, uh, named Jason Weiner, who is just a crack up-and-coming um, co-op lawyer, and um, and you know, so we, while our kids are playing on the playground, we spend a lot of time talking about this stuff, and and it is just so fun to see the the ways in which he's uh, uh, cooking up um, really creative ways to essentially. Uh, uh, make sure that people really do have control of the enterprises they depend on. You know, it really comes down to a kind of basic humanism, but it's also about building the right kinds of economic incentives and so forth that that uh, uh, allow people to 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 flourish. Um, so it's a it's a real missed opportunity, and it's something that I hope uh, will start to change. I think it I think it will. Yeah, and you know the history of the internet and the history of cooperatives. There's so many examples, and I've always found that examples are worth a thousand opinions. Um, when someone sees that like Mondragon exists, or someone sees how someone thought up the employee stock ownership plan, or someone sees that, you know, some of the most major websites on the internet, you know, WordPress. I've heard at one point was like a quarter of all websites. Wikipedia is a nonprofit, and it's the like who would have thought that a nonprofit ragtag team would do something? It's not a cooperative, but just alternate forms besides the kind of profit maximizing firm, um, the whole open source and free software movement. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, once you start learning about these examples, you start seeing that it's, it's easier than we think. And it's much more possible than we think. It's not a pipe dream. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm a, you know, I'm the kind of geek I run, uh, Linux on my computer and, and, you know, uh, do all my writing in Emacs, which was, you know, first 
written in the 1970s and, you know, old text editor program. So I, I love that stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, the thing that I think is really valuable from it is just as you say that that already we've demonstrated that it's possible to do distributed governance and basically democratic processes at scale uh, over the internet among people who don't necessarily see each other face to face. Um, and and uh, we, the, the problem is we just haven't taken the kind of creativity that the open source movement has brought to intellectual property and building these incredible open source software commons. We haven't taken that creativity to corporate law to the structure of the of the companies that end up really owning and controlling the, the resources uh, uh, for building the economy. And, and that's, I think, the next horizon and that we, a challenge we need to take up. Uh, and for too long, uh, the tech community has been kind of uh, 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 too tolerant to allow this investor ownership model to completely dominate the internet, uh, other than the examples that you mentioned. and. Um, uh, and, uh, and and increasingly, it's been interesting to see, you know, founders and uh, successful founders and, and investors and, and people who are deeply embedded in the current system coming to us and saying, you know, hey, you know, we recognize there's a lot of untapped value. There's technology that we just haven't been able to use because um, we don't have the business model for it. Um, what if we had a different business model? Would that enable us to... Uh, to to employ technologies that we've just been letting sit there. Uh, uh, so so the opportunities are not only uh, kind of idealistic and humanistic. They're also um, you know recognizing uh, uh, potential uh, economic potential uh, for stuff that we just haven't been allowed to see because the investors don't want us to. Huh. Very good. Great stuff. Great stuff. Super. Nathan, thank you for doing this. This is excellent, and uh, I hope we can all three carry on in this kind of mutual uh, uh, mutual and widespread effort we're on here, uh, as I detect it. So. Absolutely. And, and I just want to add, I think what you're doing is incredibly important. You know, I, I, in, in the course of all of these projects we've been talking about, um, it, it's just struck me how, uh, uh, how much the the richness of of our religious traditions are being neglected as we uh, as we encounter the social challenges that yep. we're facing today and uh, uh, and it's it, I just encounter this everywhere I go and so the the way in which Solidarity Hall is bringing that social dimension uh, 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 back into play uh, is is you know absolutely unique and 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 vital. Um, and it's, uh, I, I think it has the potential to break through some of the really just noxious um, dividing lines that have formed uh, in our societies uh, and, and start to have more uh, kind of constructive conversations about how we can move forward. Yeah, yeah, that's great. All right, very good. Gentlemen, thank you. And uh, we shall ride again soon, I hope. Thanks, Nathan. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you both. Bye, guys. Have a good day. Bye.